Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. From the Talks and Tasting Studios, I am Bullhagen. And I'm Vicar. Peter's here. Hey, Pete. No Berg today. He's visiting family, I think he said. So, so no Berg today, but we will carry on. Uh, I will try and be, uh, to have times of uh, incredulous grumpiness uh, to fill in. Riff on that. Yeah. Yeah. So how you doing, Vicar? Pretty good. It's cold out there again, but it is Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it got it down to like 10 below last night, Peter. Still. That's uh, a lot of fun. I think here it got down to 19. <laughs> Heat wave. But the rest of the Midwest is getting dumped on with snow. Yeah, so at we least didn't get we any didn't snow. Get we maybe got a little bit of dusting the other yeah. day, but it wasn't part of that snowstorm. So no real shoveling needed. And, and Vicar, it's a Saturday morning, so I, if I have got a little bit of a morning voice, it's because of that. And uh, okay. Vicar's got his coffee. Yep. Uh, I didn't know if you wanted a, a different beverage, but I did bring uh, some of these. Would you like? Yeah, the Arnold Palmer. I might take that. Thank you. All right. I think I'm going to go with the Sprite today. You know, Sprite is a little underrated as a refreshing drink. That's my theory. Do you got a theory about that, Pete? Um, I hear LeBron James likes it. Yeah. Well, you know, Sprite, I th- I do think. Didn't we do a lemon-lime taste yeah, test? Yeah, we did. That was one of the first. And Sprite was by far the winner, wasn't it? Yep. I remember some of the dusty-tasting ones. Right. According to Berg, I think. <laughs> And we thought maybe it's just the cups we put them in. <laughs> so I, I've got a, a, a mini Sprite from the Clerical Airs mini fridge. Everything's mini today. Ah, so anybody watch the Olympics yesterday? <laughs> nope. So I watched about five minutes of it yesterday. Mm-hmm. Of the opening ceremonies. Just enough for me to get annoyed and t- change the channel. Um, and, and in that five minutes, I saw a bunch of skaters... Uh, Chinese skaters skating to the song Imagine by John Lennon. And then then I saw that for some reason they were showing all these clips of small Chinese children slipping on ice on their ice skates and falling down. I'm not sure what the point of that was. But like, oh, isn't it cute? And and some of those were kind of violent, like hitting their heads and... Oh, man. But they thought, oh, isn't it cute? You know? So it was like, imagine... John Lennon's Imagine and a bunch of Chinese children falling on skates. It's really, really heartwarming, Vicar. <laughs> like, uh, like Broomball. Right. It was, like a, it was like a strange Chinese contemporary service. <laughs> so I think uh, I want to do a public service here, Pete. All right. Um, a lot of people like really like this song, Imagine. Right? So you're going to crush it for us? Well, I mean... If you're a Christian, you should hate the song. <laughs> okay. I think I've actually heard it being used as a contemporary Christian song before. You know, wasn't Reimagine one of the recent themes of Synod or something? I don't know. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I could be wrong on that. but I mean, we are kind of known for bizarre slogans. So um, uh, do you have any uh, feelings towards the song, Peter? Like every, it seems like every like middle school choir winds up singing it, right? Yeah, I don't have any really strong feelings about it. Um, I don't know; it could be pretty sometimes. Because if if you look at the words, what I find interesting is this was written oh probably around the time I was born, probably about fifty years ago. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, what I noticed is uh, we don't really have to imagine anymore. We see what it looks like. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. So so John Lennon's uh world that he could imagine we're kind of getting right now and uh and how's that working out for us? <laughs> Apparently not that well. <laughs> nope. So it starts off imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. I mean, so he's asking us to imagine a world without any kind of doctrinal basis. He's imagining, asking us to imagine a world where um, life ends at the grave, where sin wins, 
that our lives are just a hopeless march to death, right? Not living for something bigger, really, just living for today, getting what you want for today, and no consequences, right? Right. No consequences, um, and uh, no no real understanding of, of right and wrong because there's no basis for it. There's no no heaven, no hell, and people just living for today. That, that actually is a good description. Of the times. Right. How's that working out for us, Vicar? It's not, is it? And it's interesting, too. Why do you think that the Chinese uh, communist government would love this? They could force a purpose on broken people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is, the, I mean, communism is one of the, always has been one of the biggest um, enemies of the Christian church, right? They, they don't want people to have any idea of their bigger picture outside of their lives. They don't want a bigger picture of a higher authority of God than the government. So imagine if you can a world yep. where no heaven, no hell, no meaning, no purpose, no true understanding of right and wrong based on a God that even the government would be subjective to. It's easy if you try, Vicar. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> imagine imagine what that would look like. Step out your back door. <laughs> Watch a little YouTube. Am I sound like an old crusty man, Peter? Um, no comment. All right. To the next verse. Now, I want you to imagine this, Vicar. Imagine, like, close your eyes. Listener, he's closing his eyes. He's really trying to imagine this, okay? Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion to. Imagine all the people living in peace. You know, Chris Christian, Pastor Chris Christian, he, he mentioned to me one time that he did like this song. So they want a, a peace without God, right? A peace without law. If you, if you, if you take out countries, if you take out uh, order, you take out, uh, then obviously... Religion is part of to kill or die for, too, you know. So he wants you to have nothing to die for. Willing, You're willing to die for, nothing. Perfect people for a leader. Right. Yeah, that worked out. I mean, uh, if Jesus could have saved some time, he could just imagine this world. Yeah. He wouldn't have to die. Nothing to die for. Um, and so... Yes, if you take out the countries, if you take out law, of course we'll have peace because we're all inner good, you know? We can all just ignore original sin and we could just say, you know what? If we have all these, well, all these things of order, uh, we can just, we'll live at peace. That's natural, right? I mean, there's no real laws between you and your neighbor on a daily basis. Sounds like a confusion of peace and order. Right. And I, I would ask, okay, as we have nothing to die for, right? No countries, I mean, our border. Anyways, how's this working out for us? We should call Chris Christian and ask. <laughs> All right. You may say, I'm a dreamer. I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. So, in other words, I would say I would agree you are not the only one, John Lennon. <laughs> right? You are not the only one. And you could tell here that uh, you might think, well, this is just kind of dreamer art artsy language. But there is a desire here to make this understanding an evangelical understanding. Meaning, uh, I'm a dreamer, not wanting religion, not wanting kind of order, not wanting any of those things, not wanting any law. Uh, no heaven, no hell, nothing to die for. And we want you to join us into this hopeless dirge to the grave. Sign me up. Man, what is Berg doing on our podcast when he's not here? Well, that's what I thought. I figured I could I could chant a little Berg with this, right? I'm imagining Berg with us today. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, oh, yes, um... So the world will be as one. You can almost picture the uh, president there of China putting his arm around Vladimir Putin. Right. That song's playing. 
Right? And if you think about it, I mean, China is actively uh, trying to, uh, you know, do without religion. So, I mean, yeah. why, why do you think it is that they wanted to sing the song? Next verse. Imagine no possessions, wrote millionaire John Lennon. Right. <laughs> I wonder if you can. No need or greed for hunger. I, I imagine that uh, we can, uh, we can. I can read these words without fear of copyright because you know they're not wanting to make any money off this song. <laughs> um, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Sounds like a game plan. <laughs> it's a. It's kind of interesting how as he wants to do away with religion, with, uh, while at the same time thinking that that's the beginning of, of sharing. When historically, it is a Christian church that has been the most generous. The Christian church is the one, if you go to Africa, who's taking care of the orphans. Right. Um, and uh, who built the hospitals? Yep. Um, who has been, who is the most... Orphanages, all that. Right. I mean, what did Jesus teach? Take care of the orphans and the widows. But you think the true ability to love, according to this song, is to have no religion, where the Bible actually teaches us this is how you love. This is how you love your neighbor. And without any kind of backbone, without any kind of agreement, I mean, I imagine he was writing against capitalism, right? And we're seeing that, yes, in some ways capitalism has its failures when there is no a moral code behind it. Survival of the fittest. Right. So if, if you hand in the underpinnings of, of, of the Ten Commandments, for example, um, and loving God and loving your neighbor, capitalism does kind of fall apart a little bit. I'm trying to think where, where socialism lies and all that, too. It's like a replacement for the church or, and God. Right, don't you think the, the communist China wanted to sing this because they wanted to, to, uh, to help us? This is the world that you can imagine we're trying to give you and the world. But it's kind of has a nice hypnotic melody, though, so it's good. But it also, do you notice how it says, okay, no, uh, it actually mimics biblical language here. Uh, for example, Revelation 21, no more crying, no more tears, no more hunger, no more thirst, no more mourning. The old order has passed away. Mm-hmm. A real, everlasting heaven. And you, this, imagine this: no possessions, no need for greed or hunger. Um, yeah, it's it's like the serpent in the garden again, right? Twisting God's words, and it forces us to to drive us away from the goodness of God to rely purely on the goodness of what's in man's heart. How's that working out for us? Imagine, if you will. And feel free to learn it behind a block wall and barbed wire. Right. So. But you may say, Vicar, that I am a dreamer. But I'm not the only one. And someday you'll join us, and the world will live as one. You know what? Uh, uh, Jesus prayed for unity, too. Did you know that? How did he pray for unity? He said, prayed for his disciples. Let them be one as you and I are one. True unity comes from, really, the Word of God. Right. True unity comes from Christ. True unity is met at the altar, where brothers and sisters actually are one in Christ Jesus, in his love and forgiveness eternally. And, which has given us something to die for, willing to die for because you have, you have a promise of Christ beyond the grave. Imagine that. Any comments, Peter? Am I sounding too grumpy? Um, I'm just... Uh, it's really funny to me that you just jumped right into this. You were really hyped about this, um, and you skipped over the text completely. Oh. Well, we'll get Did there. You, were you aware of that? <laughs> well, I, I, I figured... I, I wanted to get the law before I get the gospel, right? I wanted to... I, you know, I wanted to get to... Because... Actually, the transfiguration is the opposite of this. The transfiguration is the opposite. 
um, which is our text. So as I take a, a sip of Sprite, why don't you go ahead and read our text for us? After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. All right, so I am preaching on this, and what I thought I would do is, is rather than just tell, tell you what I'm preaching on, to, to tell what I'm preaching on, um, and I have lots of points here that I actually won't make it in my sermon, but um, 12 things that we learn from the transfiguration. This is the imagine I want you to, the kind of imagine I want you to have, Vicar. Okay. Peter, play the intro. Enough nonsense. It's time for Bullhagen's Top 12. Number 12. It gives us a sneak peek of everlasting life. Right? For example, you have Moses. How? What happened to Moses? How did he die? We don't know. He died, but nobody knows where he was buried. And was he allowed to go to the promised land? No. He was not. Why? Because of the sins of the people. They're grumbling. Right. And, and he, at the rather than... He got mad at the, is it Meribah? And he took his staff and he slammed the rock. The yeah. rock. He didn't do it the way he was commanded by yeah. God. Yeah. So God didn't let him go into the promised land. But now, where do we see Moses? In heaven. We see him appear in glory with Jesus. So so not only is Jesus in his glory shining in, his, in, in the brightness of his righteousness on transfiguration, but it also shows us Moses and Elijah, saints of God, also appearing with Jesus in glory. So it gives us, and this is something I think Luther really pounded home about, uh, the transfiguration, that it wasn't just Jesus, that it gives us a glimpse of, of life for us too, what the resurrection for us also is like. Number 11. The epistle lesson also shows, I'm from, uh, is that Second Peter? Got that Second Peter one, yep, sixteen through twenty-one. He uh, he shows we give Peter a hard time sometimes, but you notice how how Jesus told Peter not to say anything till after the resurrection. Yeah, right. So after the resurrection, what does he do? He does speak about it. He says uh, in Second Peter, "We are eyewitnesses of His Majesty." So he explains that he did see this glory, and so he really did understand it. Okay, and so uh, it was something then that we take for us is the fact that, as Peter explains, it has great meaning for us today. As he teaches here, particularly um, the authority of God's word, uh, Peter does, we see that the very same transfiguration that, that he saw was a reason for him to teach of God's word in the promise of God's word for the people of God today. We should do well to listen to him. So Peter shows that he understood what was going on, and, uh, and then he would talk about it, because it is important, Peter, by Peter's own admission, not just a story, it is important for us to mark and learn and understand what Jesus did. And that, and that is uh, um, giving us a word that we can trust. Number 10. Number 10, we have both a sure prophetic word, Peter says, uh, Moses and Elijah, the prophetic word, but we also have the testimony of God himself. This is my beloved son. And what should we do? 
listen to him. So it shows us here that that um, how Scripture holds together. Moses, uh, the writer of the first five books, Elijah, the great prophet, all testify to Christ and who he is and Christ's own word and what he said. So here you have an explanation and a vision that shows that God's word holds together both Old and New Testament, a prophetic word and also the words of Christ himself all hold together to tell exactly the same story of salvation, which is something that Peter probably needed to hear because it wasn't that far before this. What did he do? Denied Jesus or? Yeah, he had really denied that Jesus should suffer and die. And that's when, when Jesus said, get behind me, you do not have the things of God, but the things of men. Number nine. It also shows us that uh, Peter understood where God meets his people. So as, remember what Peter wanted to do when, when he's confronted with his glory? Build three tents. Three tents, three tabernacles. Yep, try and contain them. The, the, how, the glory of God is too much for us. It needs a home. And, and where did God meet with his people? With Moses. On a mountain. On a mountain and also... In the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, in the tent. So he actually understood, I think. Now, people, you might say, well, this is silly or we give Peter a hard time. I really do think he understood this is where we're meeting God and we meet God where he hides his glory and he promises to meet us. And uh, I think the lesson that we have here for us is, well, God promised us to meet us too in certain ways. And, uh, and, uh, and so when you think of those things, God shows us, what's going on behind the scenes, that his glory is there. Number eight. John also understood what this means for us. It was at Christmas time where we read these words from St. John, John, the chapter one of his gospel. We have seen his glory. Right? John mm-hmm. was... Yep. John saw his glory and he too wrote about it as a way of this is attesting that this is God who was made flesh for us. So he understood this well. And actually, um, he would later write as well in Revelation chapter 1, a vision of Jesus too, where he says he sees a son of man with uh, hair white as snow, eyes like fire and flame. And then as John fell at his feet as though he was dead in the presence of God, uh, God says, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. Uh, I um, I am forevermore alive. I died, I am forevermore alive, and I have the keys of death and hell. So as John sees probably an even more powerful vision of heaven and, and, and Jesus, uh, something he would probably would have recognized earlier, right? Um, he has in the presence of God in that vision, do not be afraid that he is the one who is dead, and now alive, tying his death and the resurrection then to the transfiguration where he sees Jesus white as snow. And, uh, and he includes here then too, as he sees Jesus, he is the one who has the keys of death and hell, meaning he is the one to lock death and hell for us too. Number seven. We see the divine nature of Jesus that is hidden, Right? Yep. Jesus is both God and man, but he didn't show his glory all the time. Just here, right? He gave little glimpses through things like the miracles, through calming the, of the storm, right? But here we see how the divine nature is there all along. And um, which then shows if Jesus is that God, if Jesus is God, then certainly he could make full payment for our sins by his death. And certainly he can be the one who defeats death and hell for us. It's like a behind the curtain, behind the collar of Jesus. Right. Behind the flesh. Right, and that's going to be seen in, in some of my other points here. But uh, is it, uh, it wasn't the fact that he changed. It's he showed his disciples, Peter, James, and John, for, for a short time, who he really was. And even that was a little muted. 
you know, because when he does see it in Revelation, it's it's even more. He falls down as though he is dead, which is almost the same uh, thing the shepherds did when they saw the angel of the Lord. Right? They mm-hmm. fell in fear. Right. Number six. Uh, we also see in Jesus the human nature, um, and the fact that they saw him every day, not like this, and uh, and in this human nature, they would go on to see Jesus suffer and die. Um, and yet will lead them to victory. And we also see Jesus, you know, the interesting thing about having Moses there is Moses, who through whom God gave the law, as Moses talks to Jesus, that really is a beautiful sign that Jesus, as one of us, as one of us is the one who actually fulfilled that law. Moses couldn't. He couldn't even enter the promised land. But Jesus did. And by them appearing in glory, we see that uh, Jesus is the only one who could fulfill the law, which he did as a man, as one of us, in our place. Number five. Uh, In the transfiguration, we see that Jesus was guarding them from the offense of ordinary or being suffered violence to, okay? Um, He was showing them what was going on behind the scenes. So, if you have that vision of Jesus, of Jesus in his glory, and then from that point on, through his death, it is hidden. That, that's going to... I wonder if that had a point of why, why Peter pulled out his sword. It's like, that would if, if you saw Jesus in his glory like that, and then someone came to arrest him, you'd be like, oh, we got this. They, they got nothing on you, right? Right. <laughs> I saw you. I saw you on that mountain talking to Moses and Elijah. These Roman soldiers, they're not going to... We got this, you know? So, so, uh, um, but up to, but there was an ordinary weakness in his human nature that, in a sense, was maybe offensive. It's not something that you would assume would overwhelm the powers of this world. Yeah. Why would God stoop to that level? It, it, like you said, it's offensive. To walk around like that, right, and, and that, that's <clears throat> the beauty as Moses and Elijah appears in this way, because in by stooping down in a sense to that level, what does he do to us? It lifts us up, lifts us up, and that's why why we could talk about how Moses and Elijah were, were there and how it is our resurrection, the glory that we will share when God raises us up into glory. Number four, it teaches us uh, of the glory of baptism. Now, what do I see? Like the, the great Luther baptism hymn, it just sees water, right? Um, but this teaches us uh, that there's more glory behind it. And to me, I like making a comparison because the, the easiest comparison of, of times that we see is, is we compare this to his baptism, right? right? Where the Spirit comes, the Father's voice attests, this is my Son, and uh, the whole anointing Jesus, you need to listen to him as he begins his ministry. Um, and what I find interesting is this is almost kind of like this, but there's a difference between transfiguration. That Jesus' transformation isn't just him. It's Moses and Elijah appearing with him. And it brings Peter, James, and John along with him and places them in this story. So to me, it really does say something about baptism as well, that uh, we're involved, that, that uh, this glory that you see, the whiteness, the brightness, the righteousness, the overwhelming glory is also uh, yours. yours and given in the ordinary means of baptism. Don't be offended by the simple nature of baptism. It's not going to overwhelm you like the powers of an you know, Olympic opening ceremony, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yep where the children not fall, but also rise up again. Some of them. Yeah. So it, it teaches us of baptism. Number three. It teaches us of the Lord's Supper. As Jesus says, this is my body and blood given and shed for you. Well, who is this Jesus? Well, on the Transfiguration Mountain, we see who this Jesus is. It is the one who is powerful authority, as we heard, has the keys of death and hell. Um, 
He is the one who is given in this body and blood. And just like the disciples struggled with the ordinary-looking uh, Jesus, how can this be our king? How can he defeat sin, death, and the devil? Well, he shows us exactly what he can give and who it is that is given in the Lord's Supper as well. It's not just the Jesus on the cross that is given mm-hmm. to us, is it? It's yep. a Jesus of the resurrection. It's a Jesus of, of uh, transfiguration. It's a Jesus of, uh, of the last day. It is Jesus calming the storms. All those things. Mm-hmm. It's given in a simple way, and, uh, and yet here Jesus in the transfiguration shows us what we actually receive in the Lord's Supper. And the liturgy understands this very well from the very beginning with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Um, uh, the church for a long, long time has understood this. This is why in a lot of the really old church, uh, or old churches, what do you have above the altar? You have this big dome and you have angels around it and you have the apostles and the prophets surrounding it because, because that's the glory of the Lord's Supper as you approach the altar, that you join that. And transfiguration shows you exactly what happens in the reception of the Lord's Supper. And if that's the case, then what's the what's the lesson that we take from it? That means we go to Lord's Supper prepared, right? You don't bring your unrepentant sin to that place, do you? You know, you don't bring your lack of your hatred for others and your unforgiving spirit for others there, or you don't bring your disunity of beliefs to the altar. I think, too, this is why people used to dress up in their best, Sunday best for church. They recognize more than today they are going before the very throne of God. And they want to do so in the right way. And uh, with a clean heart would be the right way. But the way they dressed showed they understood something about that. Number two. It shows us who it is that can forgive sins. Jesus. When we talk about forgiveness, it is Jesus' words that speak absolution through the pastor, right? So, as Jesus said, you know, where Jesus said, in Matthew 18, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Well, what Jesus? (laughs) Right? The Jesus of the transfiguration. The one standing with Moses and Elijah in all his glory. There he is. And in Matthew 18, where Jesus says this, this is at the same time where he talks to, uh, talks about uh, seeking to restore your brother. It's the office of the keys, the authority of the church to forgive sins. And wherein he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them, the transfiguration Jesus, the power and might and the glory, the one who can and does forgive sins is there. And... Uh, and so that's another thing that this shows us, that as, as you hear the pronouncement of forgiveness since sins in the absolution, that is Jesus, the one you see on the mountain, who speaks those words. And number one. As they came down from the mountain back to their ordinary lives, they took that with them, right? Mm-hmm. To me, this is a, a beautiful way of understanding how you go home from from the from uh, from from church. Yep. You know, you you come down from the mountain renewed, refreshed, uh, understanding who you are, who Christ is, what He's going to do for you, how you will join them in glory with Moses and Elijah. That you that and and you go back to your ordinary lives, knowing that all of this is playing out in the background in all that you do. That you are baptized in Christ. You go out bearing his name. You go out to your dangerous, dangerous places that you must go and to marry many various places of temptation and anger and rage or whatever the case may be into where you are called to do as a father, a husband, a friend, a neighbor, um, a worker, and you come down from the mountain understanding with a, with a new, new eye each week of who you are in this world that God mm-hmm. gives you. And then... The following Sunday, you go back out to the mountain. You know where Jesus promises to meet you. You know how he feeds you. You know how he clothes you. 
you know, in that tent where God promises to be in body and blood, in word, in absolution, where he promises to be. You go back up to the mountain again and begin each week. Beautiful. So that is 12 points of the transfiguration for you. So hopefully, pastors, if you hadn't written your sermon yet, you can use some of that. <laughs> I mean, it's five o'clock is when these come out. So there's, there's still time. All right. So Vicar uh, has his top 12 list. Yep. Oh, we're doing two top 12. Dueling top 12 lists because uh, he's got this new Bible study uh, on James. Uh, he's starting on Monday and uh, he's, I got some work to do on that yet. I said, oh, great. Two birds. Let's yep. show us what you're working on here. Okay. <laughs> Make a top 12 list. Um, so we have a second top 12 list. Uh, Peter, play the intro again. Enough nonsense. It's time for Bohagen's Top 12. So this is Vicar's Top 12 Things About James that maybe you didn't already know. Because as I'm starting a new Bible study, I've got to dive in and find out who was James in order to better understand and teach uh, his his message that's recorded in the epistle of James. It can be, can be confusing because there, there can be one more than one James. There's, I think, at least five in right. the New I Testament. I mean, we just read a story of Peter, James, and John. Right. His brother. Right. So uh, people have been going through that for years, trying to figure out who wrote the epistle of James and who which James. Um, so I'm just going to get into my top 12 things I've learned so far as I'm trying to figure out who James is and, and what did he do. Number 12. James was the half-brother of Jesus. So this kind of blows that Mary as the perpetual virgin you know, theory right out of the water, unfortunately, for those who hold to that. Well, I think Berg might have something to say to you. Well, he's not here to defend <laughs> that. So, <laughs> um, Here's an example from Matthew chapter 13. You know, Don't take my word for it. Take, take Scripture's word. Um, Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56. It, it says... Is this, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they're, they're talking about who is this Jesus, but they are also mentioning the family that he comes from. Number 11. James was not always a believer in Jesus supporting his claims to be the Christ. Or at least that collectively the scripture supports that his brothers, Jesus' brothers, didn't even believe who he was. So John and Mark both record events where Jesus' brothers mocked and rejected him as the Christ. In John chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, um, here's, a, here's an insert. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So they were kind of telling him, you know, go off with your disciples and teach somewhere else. You're embarrassing us. And that's where, where that one comes from. I mean, I mean, if you think about it, though, I mean... Like, so your brother's Jesus. I mean, that's going to be hard to take. <laughs> yeah, Jesus yeah. was kind of the Joseph of his family. Right. Kind of one-upping uh, what, his brothers. What's the problem with your brother? He's kind of got this Messiah complex. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. So here's another one, the Mark uh, chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they were out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. So his family thought he was crazy a little bit. Number 10. The absence of James at the crucifixion also suggests James' unbelief at the time of Jesus' death. Because, because um, Jesus took the care of his mother. Right. From to the his cross. Disciple. Yep. From the cross, Jesus entrusted his mother Mary to the apostle John, saying, uh, you know, son, this is, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. It, James was the next eldest brother. Um, at least that's what things say so far. Um, it would have been his duty to take Mary 
But since he wasn't a believer, possibly, Jesus entrusted Mary to John, the disciple that he loved. You know, his, his good friend. Number nine. What changed in James? James had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus after years of re- rejecting Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. This is accounted by Paul, who also came to real faith after an encounter with the resurrected or even glorified Jesus. Right? He was blinded mm-hmm. by that transfiguration-type white light. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 6 to 8, It talks about the witnesses of the resurrection, and Paul mentions James. So here's what that says. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul put himself and James in that category of apostles right there. And he's he. this is the only account, I think, that we have that Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection. Number eight. James was one of the apostles and also referred to as one of the early church's pillars of faith. In Galatians chapter one, verse 19, Paul. So how do you know, how do you know that this James isn't the James that like was on the mountain? Peter, James, John, the brother. Right. right? The references as the Lord's brother, things like that. In Galatians chapter one, 19, Paul says, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So there it is right there. Okay. Confessed as both an apostle and the Lord's brother in that verse. Okay. And in Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, uh, Paul says this, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and and they to the circumcised. So there's a reference as, let's say, a James as a pillar of faith, right? Right. Number seven. James became the leader of the early Jerusalem church. In Acts chapter 12, we have one of the councils in Jerusalem, right? Mm-hmm. And in Acts 15, we have the second Jerusalem council um, where they're arguing or discussing, debating, do they need to submit to the law of Moses, circumcision, to be a part of right. the Christian church? At that time, James was the leader, the moderator, and the speaker at the council and he hears the testimony from Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. So if people want to read up on that, it's in Acts chapter 15. And then in Acts chapter 21, that accounts a a third Jerusalem council, and I believe it's still James there too. Number six. Sources outside of the Bible cite James as the brother of the Lord and James the just bishop of Jerusalem. So we've got some outside sources, they call them like extra biblical literature. So writers from the first few centuries that weren't necessarily scripture, Mm -hmm. but spoke to things that doesn't contradict scripture. So we've got uh, Clement of uh, Alexandria. Um, He's one of them that mentioned James as the brother of the Lord. And Eusebius claimed that ordination came through James. He, He had the authority to ordinate other uh, ordain, yeah, and then Jose- Josephus records the death of the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, um, whose name was James. So both Jesus, who was being called the Christ, and the brother of Jesus, who was James, and that uh, James was stoned in sixty-two A.D., which, as we know, Berg would say, rocked to sleep. Mm-hmm. So that this death in 62 AD of, of James, the leader of the church at the time, is accounted to the brother of Jesus by some outside sources as well. Number five. Now we're starting to get a little more into what was James teaching. James's epistle and teachings were to those already reborn in Christ, so Christians, who are bearing fruit, first fruits of the new creation. So a lot of his message is about 
that first fruits flow from faith and that, you know, deeds flow from faith, um, which we could compare to Jesus' teachings, you know, about first fruits, fruits of the spirits. Even Paul talks a lot about that. Like the vine and the branches. Yes. Like you can't produce right. uh, fruit unless you're connected to vine, Christ. You are the branches. Right. Yep. And then the thing about Luther, which I won't get into much more than this, this wasn't an argue for righteousness on account of your works or justification on account of your works. So James' message appeared to be contrary to that of the Reformation. So some Reformation-era writers like Luther, at least at first, didn't really like the canon, James being in the canon, Mm -hmm. for other reasons too. But uh, since I'm not an expert on that, I'll just say this. It's not an argument for justification, but because we are justified, this is what the life of a Christian becomes. A life in Christ has visible fruit. I think that's more in line with what James was teaching sure. about to to Christians. He wasn't converting people with it's, this message. It's the order of things. Right. Number four. James's teachings are closely paralleled to Jesus' teachings. I mentioned that, but there's some examples. Uh, for example, in both James chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 5, with Sermon on the Mount, um, there's this Mention of let your yes be yes and your no be no. Both James and Jesus were talking that way. James's teachings also have been noticed by scholars to parallel not only the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Plain. And this points to an author who thoroughly knew the mind of Jesus, you know, like a brother would right. understand his own siblings, but also someone who was present where he spoke. And there are firm allusions in James to the teaching of Jesus, many of them, but here's some of them. Ask and you will receive. Sounds like Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. God's kingdom belongs to the poor. Those who laugh will mourn. The humble will be exalted. Woe to the rich. Do not treasure up wealth and avoid taking oaths. So these are some themes of James that also are prominent in Jesus' teachings. James also taught as one well-informed by the Old Testament, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, wisdom literature, the Pentateuch and the prophets. And there are also many probable allusions with common themes of uh, some of the other teachings of Jesus, joy and tribulation, faith and doubting, hearing and doing, uh, the love commandment, mercy, serving, not judging, perseverance and trials, etc. So James's teaching had a lot in common with Jesus' teachings. Number three. James is not dependent, however, on the synoptic gospels or Paul's epistles. There's not a lot of um, appeared borrowing of material there. Or a... So the comparisons with what Jesus said seems right. to be kind of like a natural like, coming not from... We the... have to hear it from the synoptic gospels, but not that he just took it from there. Right. Because he uses that as informed by the Old Testament. He explains it from the Old Testament, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and the wisdom literature. So James is not dependent on the Synoptic Gospels or Paul's epistles. What I'd like to say about that is some would argue that point um, for being an argument towards early authorship. Because it could have been written before those other writers. Okay. Just some would argue that. You know, maybe uh, like Dr. Scare, perhaps. He's got a book on James, and he likes to f- to talk about authorship. Does he, does he hold that it, this is a refer- reference to Jesus' brother, too? Yes. So I'm still reading his book, but that's part of my study. I'm using him as a resource, too. Okay. And so does the New Concordia Commentary on James by Curtis P. Is it Geis or uh, Geese? Geese, maybe. He quotes Dr. Scare from time to time. Number two. James speaks with humility, um, as Christians should, right? Those who Mm -hmm. emulate Christ. He never touts his blood relationship to Jesus or his position as a leader of the Church of Jerusalem. You know, think a little bit how Paul might have boasted on his own apostleship and how he is um, called to Mm -hmm. speak to the Gentiles. He, he, He says he's humble, but he does reflect a little bit of a... 
identity ego there. James does not. And number one. James's overarching theme comes from the fact that the gifts of God are given to his children, children of the Heavenly Father, and they are to be uh, used properly, not misused. So these are, uh, you know, three articles of the creed types of gifts. Gifts from the Father, such as life, and gifts from the Son, such as redemption, and even gifts um, in the life of Christ through sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Um, So you can, let's see, James proclaims in this that uh, there's visible evidence of the fruit in the life of a Christian as we wait Christ's return. So the coming of Christ shapes the Christian identity, our worldviews, and our actions, or it should. So it's not an argument for works righteousness, but bearing fruit in Christ because we live a life in Christ. So I think we could kind of categorize some of that as maybe third use of the law, Mm -hmm. you know, with James, a good teaching, a good epistle to use for third use of the law. And maybe also a second use as a mirror and even rebuking sin, um, holy living, uh, control of the tongue, things like that. And then the gospel in James is based on God's gracious and giving nature, saving word, and new creation in Christ um, as we await the, the resurrection to come. All right. Well, we've got some a good background of James, and it sounds like you're almost ready to go for your uh, big Bible study. We'll see. <laughs> see if I learn something that changes these. That's the best way to learn about a book is just to teach it. Yeah. You really have to get deep into it to, to teach it. So, Well, I think that sounds like an episode, Pete. I think so. All right. So uh, uh, thank you for listening. I am Bullhagen. I'm Vicar. And may your imagination be of the transfiguration. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, on Twitter at clericalheirsp for podcast, or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time.